Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of Just End the Suffering Podcast with New York Sports Talk. I'm a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. i got a good show for you this week. The PGA Championship is coming up this week out at the Ocean Course on Kiowa Island. And you're joined by our PGA Tour correspondent, Dandy Martini. We're going to break down the championship, break down the favorites to win, give you some value bets here. All that coming with Dan in just a bit. We're also going to check in the legal corner with our legal correspondent, Phil Freyetta. Some interesting news on in the baseball front last week. We had the Grievances filed between the league and the Players Association for last year's labor situation in regards to the whether or not they played more than 60 games due to the COVID pandemic, stuff about the A's, all that good stuff. We're going to talk about with Phil, the legal corner. Make sure you get locked into the end of the show for this two-minute drill. We're going to talk about what's going on with the Mets here and discouraging weekend down Tampa Bay, dropping two out of, actually getting swept, excuse me. But there is still signs of optimism here. That's coming out of the two-minute drill. But we'll get all started with our opening tip. And a little bit of reset of where we are in the playoff picture with the NBA locals right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, opening tip time here on the podcast. We are talking about the NBA and something of interest here for for the NBA fans. Both the locals are going to the playoffs. The Nets and the Knicks are not only going to the playoffs, they are both hosting series in the first round. With the Nets, that's not very surprising because we knew this team would be very good going into the season. They're even better when they picked up James Harden in the Rocket trade. And this is the two seats set up for them. They are now waiting the winner of the play-in tournament. They're going to find their opponent Tuesday night because the 7-8 game is between Boston and Washington. Whoever wins that game plays the Nets. Whoever loses drops into the 8-C game where they play the winner of the Pacers and Charlotte Hornets matchup. Now, it doesn't matter who the Nets play here. They're going to be heavily favored. The Celtics... Bigger name, but again, down Jalen Brown for the season. A lot of pressure on Jason Tatum. That team has not been the same. They're not a good defensive unit. They don't have the firepower give has the Nets. Washington has the firepower, but they cannot defend. So there'll be a lot of games and the Nets are winning like 140 to 120. That would be a scenario like in that series. The interesting thing here is how they approach the series. And there will be parts of the series where they essentially use this as a tune-up to get the full lineup together ahead of the second round match against the Bucs, which should happen because the Bucs are playing Miami. Actually, a tricky series in Milwaukee because, you know, Jimmy Butler can go off in the playoffs. This team wins the finals last year. We may get the bubble heat back, but let's say Milwaukee gets through here. The Nets have to get sure they get this lineup of KD, Kyrie, James Harden clicking together. You know how many games the three of them were on the court at the same time, all three of them? Exactly eight. The Nets have mostly had one of them in the lineup, one or two of them in the lineup, only all three eight times. So 
that's a tricky spot to be in when you have a team full of superstars who can be ball dominant at times. So it's interesting to see if the Nets use this series against a team they should easily crush. And it's going to be like a five game at most, which is the five game sleep where, you know, Nets win the first three. The lower seed wins the game four in their home court. The Nets win game five back home. That's going to be what happens here. You want to get this group clicking ahead of the Milwaukee series because the Bucks gave the Nets some issues. They beat them twice in a row recently. And you're looking at maybe the Sixers in the conference finals. Again, the Sixers beat the Nets recently. You want to get your big three clicking ahead of those series. So this is the tune-up round for them. Nets will advance easily. Watch and see how the big three are playing together in this round. The Knicks, on the other hand, this is a, still a big shot because remember, back at the beginning of the season, we were making jokes about the Knicks. Remember this moment from Soul, the Disney movie that won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature? This is the zone. It's the space between the physical and spiritual. Wait a minute. I was here today doing my audition. This must be where musicians come when they get into a flow. Not just musicians. Watch this. Oops. Check this out. I have been messing with this team for decades. And the Knicks lose another one. All right, all right. Yeah, the Knicks were the butt of jokes in Disney movies, but right now they are the four seed in the East. They are hosting a playoff series. We got comeback player of the year. I mean, most improved player of the year, Julius Randle. But Tom Thibodeau should be the coach of the year. Probably won't win because they give it to either Monty Williams or Quinn Snyder out west, but... The Knicks doing what they're doing right now is so fun. And they got the best possible match in the first round, that 4-5 series with the Atlanta Hawks, where another young team without a ton of playoff experience. The Hawks obviously can score. They have Trey Young. They have a lot of weapons on offense. This will be a good contrast of styles here. You see the Knicks with their rugged defense, one of the best in the league. They lock down. They play hard on the end of the ball. The Hawks like to go up and down the floor. be fun to see how these two teams match up in this series because, again, we have a little bit of a wait. Because we have to get the play-in rounds done first. So the actual playoffs don't start until Saturday. So plenty of time for these teams to set each other up. The Knicks won the most recent meeting at the Garden. One, two out of three is why they have home court in this series. You're the Knicks. This is a series you should win. You should be getting into a spot where you win the series and are potentially taking on the Sixers in the second round here. This is a series I think it will be tight. I do think the Knicks and the Hawks are a very good matchup for each other. I think this is going to go six games. But I do think the Knicks are going to win. I think the fun here is if you can get through this first round, which I think at this point the expectation is you got home court, you should win this series. Get to that second round, then it's house money from there. It'll be a lot of fun, and we're going to do more on the Knicks and the Nets next week. We're going to do previews for those two first-round series on the podcast. The podcast probably got a couple days earlier than it usually is, so try and sync it up for when the playoffs start for these guys. But up next, we are going to dive into the world of the PGA Tour with – Dan Martini, our PGA Tour correspondent, right after this. This is for the all-time margin of victory in PGA Championship history. To break Nicholas's record of seven. Can it be? Yes! The new ruler of the game of golf is Rory McIlroy. All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast. Talking some golf today. Getting ready for the PGA Championship. Joining me today, 
our golf correspondent, works with the PGA Tour. Dan Martini is here. Dan, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Mike. Uh, exciting time. It's starting to get uh, golf season here around the country and including the Northeast. So um, golf is definitely on people's minds. So happy to talk about it with you again. Absolutely. I mean, let's start with the championship. As we go into the ocean course out at Kawea Island at South Carolina, I admit I never heard of this before. I had to look it up. I know they've played the PGA there once before. What do you know about this course and how is it going to play? Well, uh, Kiowa Island is is just it's kind of known um, as you know your your amateur golfers nightmare. Um, because it's also a nightmare for the pros as well. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful course. It's obviously an ocean course, so you can imagine it's built around the ocean. Um, you know, it's it's everything that you can imagine of a course. Um, there are uh, tight fairways, um, tough breezes. Uh, you're you're second guessing yourself every club because you're not sure if the wind's about to pick up coming off the ocean and. Um, the holes are designed in a way where it's challenging no matter what you do. You you have to make really tough calls all the time. Do you try to power your drives, you know, way out there and then just deal with the repercussions of what the wind does to it? Or do you try to keep the ball low and just kind of play that kind of low punch game and try to keep it underneath the wind gusts? It's, um, it's kind of crazy, but um, I have not personally been up there. Um, I've watched it. Obviously it's been Kiowa Island is featured quite a bit on, um, various different golf networks. They do a lot of, um, teaching shows from Kiowa Island. And they also, obviously we've seen plenty of PGA tour and, um, you know, professional events take place there, but it really, even if you look at the weather report and it says, you know, mid seventies and, you know, eight to 50 mile an hour, uh, wins. It doesn't seem like much, but for those of you who've played, you know, golf along the coastline, um, it's giving me nightmares thinking back to when I went to Bandon Dunes on the old coast, when, you know, you had to take three extra clubs just to get the ball to, to get anywhere near the, the hole and the wind would still hold it up. So playing ocean style links golf is one of the hardest things that you can do. Um, so these pros are definitely in for a test again uh, coming next week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned before at the top, we heard the clip a minute ago. Roy McIlroy won here the only time the PJ was here back in 2012. He's playing good golf right now. Do you think he has what it takes to win here again? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, anytime Rory gets hot, um, you know, you, you want to kind of stay on that train. And, and Rory's the kind of guy that, has the game to kind of stack wins. You know, there's, there's always a, a couple players out there who you might look at and say, okay, they, they had a great week, but do they really have enough of that competitive edge to now go out and exert another more four more rounds of high level tournament competitive golf? They might not be able to, but Rory and, and guys like Dustin and, and, and Justin Thomas and those guys, they can do it. So when Rory's hot, you can't pick against it. Some interesting stats kind of that, that Rory's going for him right now. It, I, I personally am a little surprised just going into this event because, you know, he hadn't played particularly great, um, you know, since the last time we, we were the last four events kind of leading into Wells Fargo. So it was a bit of a surprise, but his stats were good. I think he had missed two cuts and he had like a 
tied for 28th or something along those lines um, prior to his win. So it kind of came out of nowhere. But if you look at the stats, um, strokes gained off the tee, he is fifth on the tour right now. Um, he's second in driving distance. And I think there's one other thing. Yeah. And the other stat that I love was birdies. So he's sixth on tour right now in making birdies. So, you know, when they look at those and you kind of look at an average, you want guys that are going to hit the ball off the tee, give themselves chances to, to go low because you know, at Keogh Island, you're going to have a hole where you're going to, your double bogey is, is very much in play anytime you step up to the tee box. So you're going to need to get as many birdies on the card to offset the event, the inevitable bogey. So, um, the, the real key stat for me is he's kind of average right now when it comes to greens and regulation, which if you're not familiar with what greens and regulation means, it's, you know, on a par four, you would tee off and then you would hit the green in two. So you'd be giving yourself a chance for birdie. They're assuming that it'd be a two putt for a par. So you want to get on the hole with second shot. And so greens and regulation is definitely um, a, a very key stat in my mind. Um, and, and right now I wish he was a little bit higher because you're going to need it at Kiowa. Yeah, for sure. And another guy, I was asked about the defending champ here back in August, the PGA Colin Morikawa won out in San Francisco last year. Do you think he will do well here? I think he will. And the only thing that I don't love is that he hasn't played much golf. If you kind of look, he's, he, he hasn't played in over a month. Um, but once again, I mean, it's kind of crazy when he was playing, I mean, strokes gained approach to the green. I think he's first, uh, greens and regulation percentage. I think he's second proximity to the hole. So that means like guys from the fairway, when you approach the green with your, with your irons or even a long wood, it's how is that second shot? How close to the hole is it getting? I think he's like 10th. So he's giving himself chances to score which those three statistics, you know, greens and reg, strokes gained, those are critical to uh, winning at Kiowa. And he's in the top 10 in all three of those categories. So even though he hasn't played a ton of golf lately, man, it'd be really, I, I couldn't believe it. We'll get into it in a minute here. I know we always threw the odds, but to see him at 20 to one, I think that's a steal. Yeah, absolutely. And I also like to track and see so I can actually pull off what seems like the impossible and win a actual calendar year Grand Slam in golf. And this year's contender is Hideki Matsuyama after he won at the Masters last month. So do you think he's got a shot to make some noise here? Or do you think this is the wrong course for him? I don't know. I really, my gut is telling me not, it's, it's not going to happen for him only because at, when he won the Masters, it was such a monumental thing for golf especially for the you know the whole nation of japan um it is such a um amazing thing for hideki who you know is a phenomenal player but he's also just a great person on and off the course um and to get him as their champion to represent that nation um and what it meant to the whole nation. Uh, it's, it's amazing to see that, uh, you know, they have so much pride in what he did and they're so proud of what, of, of who Hideki has become as a professional golfer. And um, it, it put, it put Japanese golfers on the map there. And um, Hideki obviously took a whole month off to do a media tour and to go back to Japan and 
um, really kind of uh, take it all in when it comes to the the, the bigness of, of winning a major, especially at Augusta. So being the first one to do it is uh, incredible for him. So he might still be on that, um, you know, major win hangover. Yeah, we've seen that before. And obviously, there's, obviously everybody's going for those majors. All the big names will be out there. Obviously, still no tire. He's still on the men from his from his uh, car accident. But of the big names who are going to be out there, which ones do you think are going to do very well here? We already talked about Rory, but who else? Sure. Um, just looking at the odds list here and, and you know, kind of going through um, kind of some of the more betting favorites to kind of see how they do. I actually think John Rahm is a sneaky name for this course. Um, he's really, really good at uh, ball shaping, um, and shot shaping. So, you know, when you, when you're looking at Kiowa Island, something that is like a very standard thing that you would work on would be right when you get there. And, and as you kind of take your normal approach to getting used to the course setup and the tee boxes and things like that, you're looking for sight lines, right? So sight lines in golf mean, um, you know, where are you going to try to hit this ball so that your next shot is going to give you a really good chance to get it into the hole, right? So if the pin and you're playing a straight, you know, par four right up the middle, but the pin is kind of tucked all the way to the right, you want to make sure that your approach shot is coming from the left side of the fairway. So you have more green and a better angle to, to land the ball and let it roll up next to the pin. You wouldn't want to be all the way to the right if the pin's all the way to the right. Rom is kind of a master with his irons when it comes to picking great uh, sight lines and shot shaping. So uh, Rom is definitely somebody I know. He, I think he's going out at 12 to one. I think that's a really good pick there. He's long enough off the tee and if his putters going. That could be a steal there. Um, I do like guys like Tyrell Hatton. I know that's not a huge name. But I just think that he kind of has that sneaky good game. So don't be shocked if he's in the top 10. Kepka is really hard to predict right now. I know I, I got to see him for like two minutes today at the Byron Nelson. I know he's playing, but it's really hard to tell whether he's 100% healthy. He's out there. I think he's kind of toughing it out and he's not talking about his injuries that are still going on. But I think he's playing to keep up the competitive reps but I just don't know if this is the 100% Brooks Kepka. If we get that, oh geez, he, he could be very much in it because he's the kind of guy that can power his shots right through those ocean breezes. So uh, I love I love Brooks if he's you know at 100%. I don't think he will be. Two other names to keep an eye out, and then I'll save my, my number one pick I'm going to save as my overall pick, the biggest name probably out there. Um, but two other guy kind of guys to keep your eyes on, um, Justin Rose, he's going out at 40 to one. So I guess you would count him kind of as a sleeper. Um, but Rosie obviously doesn't have a ton of distance off the tee, but man, is he good tee to when it comes from that fairway accuracy and, and strokes gain going into, you know, being able to put the ball on those sight lines. You want guys that are really good iron players this week at next week at Kiowa. Uh, and he's definitely one of them. So keep an eye on Justin Rose. And then I really think the the last kind of name that if he's hot, don't be shocked if he's right up the list too is Daniel Berger. So, um, you know, I, I think that his game is, it's he, he's not known as an, you know, a, as a power player, 
Um, he can kind of do a little bit of everything. He can scramble when he needs to scramble. He can make that shot when he needs to from the fairway to shape a ball into the green to put himself in position for birdie. So if Berger's playing well, I like him at 33 to one. Uh, those are pretty good odds there for him. I don't know. I know you're going to ask about Bryson. I really don't think that this is the course for Bryson. Um, every time that I've seen two you know, somebody asked me, is Bryson going to win this week? I'm always off by one week. I do feel pretty confident though this week that this course just isn't set up for him. So I could be wrong. Maybe he's going to take a different approach. Maybe he'll be more conservative, but I don't think this is the right setup for someone with his kind of game. Yeah, that makes some sense. I also, I also like looking at the sleepers when you're trying to look at these events. Who is somebody who's not as high up the odds list here? I have the high up the bait on the name radar here. Give me the one guy who you're very yeah. high on. I think you can do very well here. Yeah, Will Zalatoris. Um, I know a lot of people got to know him on Sunday of the Masters this past year. He had a chance to kind of close the gap. He's the young kid that looks like the caddy from Happy Gilmore. <laughs> um, you know, he's got the kind of the curly or maybe uh, blonde locks. He's super skinny, um, tiny guy, but man, is can he really hit the ball. I mean, just a beautiful golf swing, um, a lot of power in a, in a small body there. So he, um, he can really pack a punch. Um, and I just think that his, his game right now, I mean, he plays all the time and he is, he's so young. He's out there. He's grinding week after week playing. He's getting a me experience. He's where he has come from two years ago to now. I mean, he has just made a massive impact on the tour and I'm, I'm sure he's only going to get better and better from here. So keep an eye on him. And I think he's going out here on the list at 40 to one. So once again, if you're, if you're looking for a deep sleeper, Will's out Taurus is my guy. Absolutely. And picking winners in golf is very, very hard because as we know, it's a lot of depends on how the stroke is that week, how the wind, the weather is all sorts of factors are beyond your control. But if you had to make an educated guess here and say, my winner pick for the PGA this week is blank. Who is filling the blank? Yeah, it's Justin Thomas. Um, I know that's kind of a, a bit of a cop out. I, um, he's going at 14 to one, so he's not the betting favorite. Um, but I just, I just think that he, he stacks up so well for this kind of challenge of golf. Um, when Justin is, is, in rhythm and, and playing his best. He's the kind of guy when all the scores start falling off guys are, you know, the wind is bothering them. The conditions are terrible. This and that. Justin's got the determination and confidence in his game to kind of rise above that. And he'll be making birdies while other guys are falling back down the board. We saw it at the players championship. So, um, and that's another Pete Dye design course, just like Kiowa. And um, you know, I like to go with the, the course designer, if you're having success on those courses, that means your game's in shape. So right now, I think Justin Thomas, he's first in birdie average on tour, uh, 24th in greens and regulation, which I said is that key stat. So he's top 25 there. He's third in scoring average on tour right now. So he, when he goes out and he's playing in competitive rounds, he's shooting the third scoring lowest average. So that's basically saying, you know, he's keeping his rounds under par. He's not having these kind of super low, super high. He's, he's consistently staying in that kind of, um, you know, lower average than, than most. So I just think that he's consistent. 
his game's in shape. He's healthy. I think he's taken enough rest time, and I think he's gearing up to uh, to win this. This will be a really – whoever wins this event, I mean, it's going to be – you're talk about needing to take a week off. I mean, this course, if it plays like I think it will, um, it's just it's just a daunting task. I, it, the PGA Tour and all the events and all the majors that they put out there, I mean, you think you're just going out and playing a golf course and – Oh, you know, like, like if Tiger was such an anomaly uh, that he could adapt his game to play at all those courses and be so successful week after week after week. I mean, that may never happen again. Um, I hope it we find, you know, somebody that can do that all the time. But there are certain courses that fit particular styles and Kiowa Island is, is definitely one of them. All right, Dan, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people follow you on social media? Keep up with some of the stuff you're doing. Sure. Out of town fan pod on Twitter. Um, I'll be tweeting a bit next week during the event. Um, just kind of keeping my eyes on the golfing world. I am not sponsored by ping. I just happen to be wearing the hat today. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, no, no connection to a sponsorship there. I just happen to love the ping hats and I was playing swinging some clubs earlier today. So, um, yeah, other than that, enjoying, uh, the few months where we get to focus on, on baseball and golf and um, before, you know, training camps and OT and all that stuff can get going. So um, I hope everybody enjoys uh, watch the rest of the AT&T Byer Nelson. It's going to be a great finish at TPC Craig ranch this weekend and uh, enjoy PGA championship next. All right. There you have it, Dan. Thanks all the time. I really appreciate it. No problem. All right, we are back here in the legal corner on the podcast talking about some news from the World Major League Baseball broke at the end of last week. Some lingering issues from the 2020 fiasco trying to negotiate with the players and the, and the owners to get, play a 2020 season. Joining us now to break it all down, our legal analyst, Phil Fred is here. Phil, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Mike? Doing pretty good. And I have to say, I forgot entirely about this until the article by Joel Sherman popped up last week, but we have a grievance now filed by the Player Association and the Union MLB. Basically, the union's ads are $500 million, about claiming that the league not made a good faith effort to play is making this possible. The league has countered that grievance. Catch me up on what's going on here with this with this article from Joel Sherman. Yeah, so uh, I think we discussed this uh, last year when, probably around this time, actually, last year, when we were talking about uh, getting the baseball season back up and if it was going to get back up. And essentially what happened is uh, the union said, hey, look, um, l- l- let me re- rewind actually here. Uh, in March 2020, when the pandemic hit and it became apparent that Major League Baseball was not going to be able to have a full season, the league and the union got together and they made a, a deal. And under the terms of the deal, they we're going to make their best efforts, they being the league, to play as many games as possible. And the, uh, in the alternative, the union said, but if there's not going to be any fans in the seats, because at that time nobody had any idea if there'd be fans and when. I mean, if 
sorry to go on a tangent here, but it's crazy to go back. If you remember March 2020, there were some people saying that, you know, this would last for a year and other people were saying it'll be over by the summer. So nobody knew anything. So, but what they determined was, well, you guys will do everything you can in good faith to play as many games as possible. And if there's no fans, we'll do what we can financially to make it feasible. That, that, those were the deals. And as a fallback, if they couldn't agree, Manfred could order a season of a few at 60 games or thereabouts. So fast forward, now we're into June, July, when, okay, it looks like we're going to be able to play baseball in some capacity, but without fans, they couldn't agree on how many games. If you remember, the union proposed 100 and something, and the league came back at 80 something, but there was going to be prorating of the salaries and, and reduction of the salaries to make up for the difference in money. And bottom line is they could not agree on a standard set of games, and the summer dwindled away. And by the time they got to the point where Manfred then said, okay, I'm just going to order it, it's already the end of July, and that's when the baseball season started. So that's why you had the 60-game season last year. Uh, so now what the union is saying is that MLB did that in bad faith. Essentially, MLB had no interest in playing more than 60 games last year because they didn't want to pay the players. Uh, so they didn't hold up their end of the bargain, and they cost us a significant amount of money. Uh, according to the union, there's no reason they couldn't have played 100 and 17 games or whatever it was that the union proposed. Um, baseball countered and said, no, it wasn't feasible to play more than 60 games. That's the most that we could have done, which to me seems a little silly because then they'll be offered to play more games just that cheaper salaries. So that doesn't really add up. But, uh, but that's a long-winded way of explaining where we are now. So the union, they want money because of what happened last year. They say the league intentionally delayed the start of the season and limited it to 60 games to cut them on salary. And the league says, no, that's not true. We did the best we could under the circumstances. All right, that makes, that makes some sense. And it does seem like we're going to be in for a legal fight here. And one thing I noted in the Charles Sherman article here was the MLB themselves has asked the is going to ask the union. I don't know if the union will agree. Is they want to fast track this grievance? I don't know what specifically that means. So, what do they mean by fast track? Is how they want to get this done like as quick as possible? Is that basically just major league major league baseball wants a decision as quickly as possible from the arbitration panel? So the way that these grievances work is it goes to a three man arbitration panel. One arbitrator is picked by the league. One's picked by the union, and one's a neutral. So essentially, the neutral is the guy who makes the decision. The other two are kind of higher guns. Uh, but they want to get this arbitration hearing heard as quickly as possible and decided as quickly as possible. The union, on the other hand, wants to drag it out. And that seems counterintuitive because the union, typically in a lawsuit, the people who want the money want it to move faster, and the people who have the money want it to move slower. Uh, but in this particular case, the reason that the league wants it now and the union wants to drag it out is the union wants it to be active when they begin CBA negotiations after this season because they want to be able to use it as a bargaining chip and say, look, we'll drop their grievance if you give us X, Y, and Z. And the league doesn't want that. The league wants it put to bed, resolved, so they can start fresh on the CBA negotiations because I think 
I think the union speaking, what, $500 million, is it? Yes, that's correct. All right, that's a lot of money. But when it comes to a CBA, that's a drop in a bucket, the, the amount of money you're talking about. Because a CBA, you're talking about a five, 10-year deal worth billions of dollars every year. So MLB, the way they see it is, hey, if we have to pay these guys a few hundred million dollars just to get rid of this and go get ourselves a better collective bargaining agreement next time around, that's worth it. And the union says, yeah, we'll just, you know, if we get a better collective bargaining agreement, we'll take that agreement and flush it down the toilet. We don't care. Yeah, right now the CBA sort of this, basically the academically sort of hanging over the league and the union because right now, like, there's not many talks going on. And you would hope they pick up more as the pandemic situation improve. You have more face-to-face meetings and so on and so forth. But the thing you're concerned here is you have this grievance going on. And the talk, the like, the process sort of split here between we're dealing with the grievance versus the CBA. So, like, this is one that if it's lingering on and on and on, you wonder how much is going to delay them actually getting a CBA done on time. Definitely. Uh, and look, it's no secret. We've discussed it on this podcast at least a half dozen times. The relationship between the union and the league is very, very poor right now. And this grievance is only going to add fuel to the fire. Uh, but Nobody could be surprised that this was filed or is going to be filed. I've heard conflicting reports, but uh, reg- nobody could be surprised by it because the writing was on the wall. And it's, and it's frankly, a good negotiation tactic for the league union. So they're going to use it. Yeah, and do you, what do you think happens here? Like if, if this thing gets settled out here and the players win the, win the thing, win the $500 million, how do you think this would impact the CBA negotiation? So you're, you're saying what happens if the arbitration, they, they don't settle. They actually let the arbitration panel decide and the players win. Yes. Uh, in, in that instance, I think it gives the players actually less leverage on the CBA negotiation than if they have it pending or settled. Uh, I think the, the league would be bitter, and I think they'd hold it out against them. So uh, I, I don't. I'm not sure if the players want to win. I, I think they'd rather just use this as a bargaining chip. It, interesting. But but look, I mean, if they win, they win. Uh, I'd be really surprised though if either side lets this get to a decision. It seems like the kind of thing that should be settled. And, and maybe it's settled, like I said, as a concession in the CBA you know what, we'll drop the grievance if you give us X, Y, Z, or vice versa, we'll give you $200 million in the grievance if you give us X, Y, and Z for the CBA. It it seems like something that can be negotiated between sophisticated parties. Yeah, and bottom line, basically, this is going to linger basically in the background while this baseball season is going on because it doesn't seem like at this point, and again, we're very early in this process, like, it doesn't seem like it would be smart for the union to agree to fast-track this. No, absolutely not. And I don't think the union is going to agree to fast-track because, again, it would be penny-wise pound foolish. Yeah, they might get $500 million or thereabouts now, but how much money are they losing on the back end in the CBA negotiation? you, you got to remember, and people, it's hard for fans to re- realize this, but little things like, are we going to add a, another man to the roster? Or is there going to be a DH in the National League? Those are worth 
billions of dollars to the union. Billions. Because you're, you're creating a job. You're creating another player. So uh, th- those are really, really big economic decisions. And uh, that's really what the union cares about more so than getting justice, so to speak, for what happened last season. Yeah, it makes some sense. We'll keep track of that going on. Another baseball interlay thing that's interesting that popped up last week I want to sort of touch on here is the situation in Oakland because right now MLB has already said, and we've talked about the past, you know, maybe expansion is a fast-track solution. Some of the financial problems caused by the pandemic because you can just charge two franchises like billions of dollars in ownership fee, in expansion fees and revote the coffers. But MLB said in the past, we're not doing that until we – fix the situ- situations in Oakland and Tampa. Tampa's in a mess. There's talk that might split time Montreal down the line, but Oakland as of right now has been given permission to explore relocation because they have a stadium project out there. The Howard in the Howard Bryant square area over there. It's not making much progress. What do you think about the Oakland situation? I, I'm all for it. I think Oakland needs to get the hell out of Oakland. Uh, but I, I think that major league baseball, should say, look, we offer a one-of-a-kind product. You cannot get Major League Baseball from anybody else. And, and I mean, it's a monopoly. It is a monopoly recognized as a monopoly by the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, who has held that Major League Baseball is exempt from monopoly antitrust laws. So everybody knows that. So if I were baseball, I would say you can't get our product anywhere else. So why are we going to give it to the city of Oakland when the A's time and again cannot fill that ballpark, no matter how good they are. And they've been a competitive team now for the better part of 20 years. So, so this isn't a, a situation of, oh, they're not good. Same thing with Tampa Bay. So I'm, I'm all for it. I, I think there are cities in this country or maybe even in Canada who would welcome a competitive baseball team. And, uh, and if Oakland's not one of them, then I got no problem getting right out of there. Yeah, and Oakland has been, it's a market you would think the league would want to be in because it's that's right in the Bay Area and the Silicon Valley industry has been booming and there's a lot of people moving out there. But at the same time, they lost the Raiders over an ability to build a new stadium. The Warriors went back to San Francisco. Like, it seems like if the trends hold here and they don't want to budge on these public infrastructure things around the Howard Howard Square site, you think that the A's are probably going to be out of town in like two years when the lease is up. I, I think that's right. And, and what I understand, obviously, I'm a New York guy. I'm not besides of you, so I'm not on, in in the weeds. But I, I just understand that the, the when it comes to the Bay Area, the Giants are, are king. And, and, you know, people say, well, the Yankees are king in New York over the Mets. Over there, I understand it. 10 times, 100 times the effect that it is here. Just no, no matter how good the A's are, they will never come close to getting the same, same fair fare as the Giants. And uh, obviously, Oakland's not the place. So I'm sure there's somewhere else that'll take a baseball team. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear what cities they have in mind. Um, I don't know if Vegas worked. I know that Vegas took the, the Raiders. Um, I think the climate there might be a little tough for baseball, but maybe, you know, maybe you do some sort of a retractable roof situation and you can go to Vegas. Uh, I don't know, but uh, I think there's definitely got to be somewhere that you can move the Oakland A's and they can draw better than Oakland. 
Yeah, I don't know if they... and, and and get a baseball park and get a baseball park by the way. Yeah, because what they play in now, Oakland Coliseum is not that's not a baseball stadium. A foul territory. It's ridiculous. Yeah, well, that stadium was a lot better before the Raiders moved back and they built Mount Davis out in center field to get the luxury boxes and ruin the ruin the vista they had out there. But I don't think Vegas works for for baseball because just because this is a very transient city. There's a lot of tourism in there and. That's a lot of home dates you have to try and fill. I don't know if you're filling 81 home dates in Vegas. I think you want to go somewhere where there's maybe a little, might not be as like sexy a market as Vegas, but like maybe there's more of an appetite for baseball. Like I think what I'm curious about is I think Portland, I think would be a fun fit because they have the trailblazers. They support them very well up there. You know, a natural ride with the Mariners. Mariners give some territorial rights potentially, but I think that'd be a good spot for the A's to land. Yeah, that that works. That might be even a better idea. Uh, obviously, you need a retractable stadium given the rain, but that's okay. You could do that. Uh, sure. Got no no objection to that. Um, or, or maybe there's even a place in in the Bay Area that they go instead. Uh, I don't know. Maybe San Jose is better. I, I don't I don't know exactly where it is, but I think that the people of Oakland and, and the city government have. They just they haven't held their end of the bargain. Yeah, the problem with San Jose yeah. is that's that's a it's again those territorial rights. The Giants have held those for years, and they have been blocking Oakland every chance they want to go to San Jose. So they will not let that one will not happen. I'm putting that one out there. Yeah, uh, that's probably right. So maybe maybe Portland. I don't know. I I'm curious to see what options come up, but but I do know that uh, again they they have failed to come to the ballpark and they have failed to give invest in a legitimate stadium and and look let's be fair here there's a flip side of that which is well why the hell did the city government have to pay for your stadium you're some billionaire owner you pay for your own stadium but that that's that's a political issue that we don't have to get into but i i understand why the a's want to move and and you know if, if i were the Oakland A's, i'd be saying look they don't come to the games they don't give us a stadium, and it's not because we haven't been competitive. I know they haven't won a World Series, but the A's have been a competitive team for the better part of 20 years now. Yeah, they absolutely have. And I do think this is one of those signs. I think it's just, just the fact that they're giving the A's this permission to start looking around. We heard the Tampa stuff. Their expansion is coming soon. I think one they want to get these two situations figured out so they can go into the expansion and get to 32 teams. I think that's MLB's end goal here. Oh, of course, because what Major League Baseball, and we, we've discussed this on the podcast too, what Major League Baseball wants to do, more teams, more playoff teams, and that allows everybody to play towards mediocrity. It gives us more playoff games to put on TV, and nobody really has to go out there and get the big free agent anymore because all you got to do is win 82 games and maybe you win the World Series. That's what they're trying to do. Yeah, and. If you do it through expansion, though, it's hard for the unions to say no because now all of a sudden you just created, what is it, 52 jobs, 26 times 2, 52 jobs if you add new, two new teams. Yeah, plus all, all those minor league affiliates. You had another like 100 and like like 100, some, 200 something players to the org, to the major league baseball organizations there. Right. So the union, even though they, they understand that it's going to hurt their some of the top guys, it benefits the majority, so they have to go for it too. I think also- and that, that's what this is. They're, they're trying to create a situation much like goes on in the NBA 
and the NHL and even the NFL starting to dabble in this too now with the with with the additional games and considering playoff expansions and stuff like that. Uh, we just you just need to be okay. You don't have to be great anymore to win a championship. Yeah, it's certainly fair. Plus, MLB, I think, in terms of scheduling, would love to have the four, eight, eight divisions of four teams each to make it much easier to try and schedule than to have to figure out the inner league every day hassle. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, uh, and look, as far as inner league play goes, that that's an interesting aspect, too, because the, the DH rule is... Obviously, that's, that's really the only issue with the inner league play right now, right? Yeah. So, so, are there any, is there anybody still around who is actually upset that the American League and the National League teams play each other during the regular season? No. I, 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 maybe it's some 75-year-old guy, but for the most part, nobody cares, except for the fact when you have American League pitchers batting in National League ballpark. That's when people care. Yeah, that's true. And two other things I want to hit on real quick before you go here in terms of the legal stuff here is, number one, the big news serves the pandemic front. The CDC changing its mask guidance rules. Now they recommend that if you're vaccinated, you do not have to wear a mask indoors or outdoors. Obviously, this depends on local ordinances, whereas if the state you're in still has mask rules, as recording New York still has not lifted their mask mandate, you still have to follow it. I think it's going to be a big bane changer. It's a sign that with the way the numbers are trending right now, they're going down. They're dropping like a stone as people get vaccinated. Like we are on track here where you're, I think you're looking at maybe in some areas you got to wear your mask at the ballpark in the, during the summer. But I think you're looking at a world here, especially in New Jersey, stuff like that. You get the football season, you might be a hundred percent with no masks in the stadiums. I, I agree. I think that'll be the case league wide. Uh, based caveat based on current information, current projections, Something changes that we don't know about. Uh, some variant develops that's vaccine resistant, or uh, the vaccines we find out they actually don't have as much immunity as long as we thought. So, something like that maybe changes that. But other than a long shot like that, yeah, that, that's what it's looking like. And, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if by July 4, you have a sold out Yankee Stadium without masks on. I really wouldn't. No, we're definitely heading in the right direction. You look the, the 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 best example I can point out is San Francisco County, which is one of the biggest areas cities in the country, and one of the most vaccinated cities in the country. I look today, you, although you look at their COVID numbers, like they had, I think, a total in the entire county of San Francisco of thirteen new COVID cases, which seems like almost like unfathomable considering where we started this. Yeah, it's it's a it's a scientific miracle. It's a it's huge for obviously everybody's health and well-being and personal life but it's, it's really big for the sports world it's big for the entertainment world uh just just before we started recording Walt Disney World no masks outside anymore uh same true of Universal down there uh so the theme parks in the summer those, those are going to make a comeback and I'm uh, yeah I think people are going to be in the ballpark this summer without masks on and I think uh I think that Come the fall, absolutely. I see no reason why the Giants and the Jets can't have full capacity, maskless crowds, and you know, hopefully uh, we get some playoff baseball under the same circumstances in New York, too. Yeah, that would be ideal. And the other COVID-related thing, like, this is something I mentioned with Pete Considori last week. We talked about the hockey with the Canadian border situation and the fact that 
Right now, we have a team in Canada. We don't know if they're going to play in Canada or have to stay, stay in the U.S. Apparently now, according to reports, that the Canadian government started to talk to the U.S. government about potentially reopening the border, but they're assuming it's based largely on the progress that the U.S. has made with the coronavirus. So if this happens, that's got to be good news to Toronto Blue Jays, who have been without a home for a year and a half. So they might be able to go back to Toronto to the All-Star break. No, I'm, I, I think that's happening, too. Yeah. I agree. Uh, I mean, it, look, it's just... It's just numbers at this point, right? If, if you look at the numbers, you see that every day we tack on another 2 million or so vaccines, 2 million more people, 2 million more people, 2 million more people. And it, as long as those trends hold and they have pretty consistently, eventually you're just going to get to the point where, like you said, there's just there's nowhere for the virus to go. And, and now you're expanding the children. So now you got the 12-year-olds. Uh, my understanding is that there's a decent chance that by the fall you're going to have it in vaccination available for kids as young as two. So it's uh, it seems like we are right on the edge of victory here. Um, and, and, yeah, I think it's great for the sports world. Uh, the, the one thing I do want to touch back on, though, is that you know some listeners may be saying, well, hold on, wait a minute. Uh, you know, I saw the Yankees. They had eight positives of fully vaccinated people or whatever it is. Labor Torres, he can't play. But I, I think that that's a bit of a false red herring here because uh, the key there is that of those eight positives, seven of them have no idea they're even sick. And Phil Nevin said he feels like he has a cold, which that's, that's what a vaccine is supposed to do. If a vaccine completely eliminates the ability to get sick, that's, that's a plus. The biggest deal is if you do get sick, are you even going to know it? And how sick are you going to be? And that, so seems like the vaccines are doing what they're supposed to do with the Yankees situation. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to see how this plays out over the next few weeks in New York, uh, because New York has one advantage. So, so as you mentioned, the CDC recommendations are only for fully vaccinated people. They don't have, they recommend the back, unvaccinated keep wearing their mask. So in a lot of places, that's tough. tough. How do you enforce it? For instance, uh, Walmart today said, we're not going to require masks of customers anymore. Just blanket, because how is Walmart supposed to know if you're vaccinated or not? They're never going to know. But the Yankees and the Mets, as you know, uh, Mike, I think starting next week, are going to have vaccinated sections in the ballpark. Yes, so I'm correct. curious to see if they use that that, that's a way to say, well, if you're sitting in the vaccinated section, I know you're vaccinated. So if you're sitting in your seat, you don't have to wear your mask. Maybe that's, maybe that's the rule. Yeah, we'll see what happens with that. And it's a good point about the vaccines also. Because remember last year when we had the outbreaks with the Marlins where we had 19 positive COVID cases, the Cardinals where we had about like, it sounds like almost half the team got it. And the, the Yankees, when they had an active case, they had eight and then seven of them were asymptomatic. So that just tells you the vaccines work. And and they they did Johnson and Johnson. The Yankees vaccinated the team with Johnson and Johnson, which is between they say sixty six and seventy two percent effective or something like that. And that's the exact percentage of people who on the team who don't have it. So seems to work exactly as it did. Uh, Moderna and Pfizer seems to be more effective at even preventing infection. But uh, but again, I mean, like you said, does it? Does it really matter if you have, quote-unquote, have COVID if you don't even know? I don't, I don't see why that matters. 
the, the, the only thing that matters is, are you going to be sick? Are you going to deal with long-term symptoms? And God forbid, are you going to be hospitalized or killed? Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, everything seems great in the sports world. And I, I really believe it. I, I really do. I think that we are going to have an all-star game without masks. I think we are going to have New York baseball this summer without masks. Indeed. So definitely a good sign. Phil, thanks for all time. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Mike. Take care. The two-minute drill. All right, two-minute drill time. And it's been a wild ride for the Mets this week because I tell you the truth, when I was getting ready to do this podcast, I was preparing to talk about how the Mets have all this mojo. The bench mob is great. They'd won seven in a row. Then they went to Tampa and got swept. Those are the things that happen over the course of a long baseball season. At the end of the day, you're not super worried about that. But the thing that's bothersome is the amount of injuries they've had. And this is one where I want to go just, you know, get something off my chest here at the Mets. And they're frustrated with the way they structure this roster because we already have seen them. They are down two starters right now. Uh, Brandon Nimmo obviously had the finger injury in Philadelphia. J.D. Davis hurt his hand. Both are still out. Jacob DeGrom on the IL because he's working his way back from a side tightness issue. They're trying not to get things too flared up. Noah Syndergaard, Carlos Carrasco, Seth Lugo already on the DL to begin with. But this weekend, they had Jeff McNeil, who apparently mismanages again because he pulled up lame in the Wednesday game. The Tuesday night game did not play on Wednesday, and they tried DHing him twice. He had to leave the game early on Sunday. They called hamstring tightness. Michael Conforto with hamstring tightness. And thanks to the brilliant way the Mets have structured this roster where they are trying to pull off bullpen games on the days that they have to fill in for either Jake or the fifth starter spot. They had a four-man bench with two of them being catchers. Tomas Nito and Patrick Fazica, the cult hero. The other guy on the bench was Sam Hager, who just made his major league debut yesterday. And two guys going out the lineup, that's a big issue because the top of the net lineup at the end of the game yesterday was Patrick Bazika batting leadoff, taking the GH spot from McNeil. And you had Lindor, Francisco Lindor second, who is still slumping a bit. He's still hitting on, still in the interstate. And you had Sam Hager hitting third. Along with the line that already has Kevin Pillar, Jonathan VR starting regularly, Jose Peraz is playing second base. That's a line you're not going to win a lot of games with. Right now, the Mets have to be smarter to hit their roster construction because you cannot win in the National League at the pinch hit when your bench is that anemic. They have to make sure they have healthy bodies up here. You cannot be carrying three catchers on a four-man bench. That makes no sense. You need to get position players up here. That sounds like they're going to do that tomorrow with essentially Janeshri Fargus coming up. Maybe clearly back out. Sounds like you're getting at least one guy going on the injured list. Maybe swap Mazika out for a position player. You need to get position player bodies in here and figure this out for the Braves. And the other thing I have an issue with is the Mets trying to insist to make Joey Lucchese a thing. We've seen it work. His ERA is over nine. He is not working right now as a bulk guy. The opener thing doesn't work when the bulk guy comes up and gives up five runs like he did against Tampa Bay. The Mets are trying to get cute. You can't outraise the Rays. The Rays are the bullpen team. You are not. They're talking about doing him again because he didn't throw enough pitches. No. Don't do this on Tuesday against the Rays. Give Thomas Zapucky a start from AAA. He's a top prospect. Give him a shot. It's on his regular day. I don't see why not. 
You could even bring Jordan Yamamoto back. He pitched like 84 pitches on three days rest. Have him be the bulk guy. It cannot be Joey Lucchese again, especially again against the Braves you have to get. The good news for the Mets, though, is that these issues should be short-term because it sounds like you might get J.D. Davis back in the middle of next week. He's going on a rehab assignment. You're going to get hopefully get Jacob DeGrom back. In a couple of weeks, you'll have the all the pitchers back, whether it's Lugo or Syndergaard, both going on a rehab soon. Carrasco, who knows with him. It's taking a little longer, but right now you just need Jake back in that fifth starter spot filled by hopefully Syndergaard in early June. That would be a help. The lineup is also going to hit when the lineup is healthy. For now, you're getting contributions for you guys like Pilar, VR, Peraza to a degree. Just got to hang in there. They're still in first place. The NL East is beating each other itself up. They have a tough week this week in Atlanta and Miami. Go three and three for the week. That's all I'm asking right now, considering your, your situation with the lineup being injured. Go three and three. Finish the trip at three and six. Come home. And give yourself a chance to regroup against the Rockies. Hopefully, you're healthy by that point. It's too early to worry. That's just a lower 500. They're still in first place. The NL East is tough. The longer this team is able to tread water without the injured guys, when everyone starts coming back, they can really take off, especially with the pitching being the way it's been for the most part. Watch out for this team. This weekend was tough. Not going to be any more bad weekends like that coming up. All right, and that will do it for this week's show. I thank my guests, Dan Martini, Phil Freyetta, for hopping on the podcast. We, a lot of fun talking to them. Good catching on the PGA Tour, getting ready for the PGA Challenge with Dan. Sports legal stuff with Phil, always enjoyable. If you want more stuff like this podcast, including my predictions for the Jets and Giants schedules next season, I know it's ridiculous. I know that we are still months and months away from even training camp, let alone the regular season, but I did make them. They are out on the blog over justonthesuffering.wordpress.com. Go subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just and the Suffering, your favorite podcast platform. You can find all episodes there. Feel free to your feedback and star ratings as well. They'll make the podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. Follow my YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Individual conversations from the episodes are up there as well. My chat with Dan and Phil. We'll both be on the YouTube page before you know it. And just like that, we are done. The podcast for the week is up. And we are going to be diving into the world of the NBA next week. A great NBA playoffs. We're going to do some MCU movie rankings and more. Until they hope you have a better week than the Celtics fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.